Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was four thousand besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. That's a long text. Uh, Jesus had fed uh, several more. He had fed another 5,000 earlier than this. Uh, but what, what we're going to see in this, and what we do see in this, are, are some things that generally we don't think about, but I, I want to uh, call your attention to them. First of all, uh, there was a, uh, an efficiency to this, perhaps not what we would think, and the way Jesus did it would probably be, not be the way that we would think it should be done. Matter of fact, uh, some later on approached Jesus, some of these same people, the record is found in John chapter 6, that's when Jesus walked across the water to move away from the crowd, and they'd followed him around the shore side and came and discovered him again on the other side. And, and uh, they, were, they, were, they were coming for the uh, loaves and fishes. And they actually uh, confronted him with the idea that maybe uh, he should have fed them like Moses had fed them with manna on the ground. So they, they were sort of criticizing him for, for feeding them in this particular fashion. The logistics sort of escape us. He doesn't tell us how it's done. We do know that there are at least seven baskets. It started out with one basket. And then Jesus broke the bread and took the seven loaves and broke them in the, the uh, apostles, took them and spread them among the people. How the fish continued and the few little fishes and the loaves continued to multiply, we don't know. We have no idea how it happened. But as each person received their portion from the basket, the next portion was given to the next person and so forth and so on. 4,000 men plus women and children ate. And then after the, at the conclusion of this, they took up seven baskets full. They had leftovers after this. And if, if we were to say, okay, how would, how would you do this in a different way? Because in our thinking, here among us, we, would, we could probably come up with different ways to handle the, the problem. How would we have done it? Would we have distributed baskets and then have the fish and the bread appear miraculously or just appear in front of them? What sort of logistical problem did this present and, and how would we have handled it? I dare say that if we were faced with this same circumstance, and that's what the apostles said when Jesus said, they're hungry, let's feed them. The first thing they thought of was, let's run and get some 
food, get some bread in town, let's take up a collection. And it might have been, that might have occurred to someone else, let's go take up a collection, let's go down and get some, enlist some help in one of the communities nearby. Let's take up a collection and buy some food and bring it up here in carts, wagons, and, and distribute it. That would have, of course, been one of the solutions we could have thought of, but, but Jesus simply handed it, handled it his way. He didn't ask for advice. He didn't, he didn't look at other sources. He simply handed it, handled it his way in a way that was unexpected. Now, I'm going to read some other accounts. If you have your Bible, it might be worth your time, worth your while to turn with me to these texts because they're rather long texts and at the conclusion of the reading of these and discussing of them I'm going to read some, uh, draw some conclusions and you'll draw your own as well. What I'm going to do we had the fishes, this, this is the way it started out the next thing I'm going to talk about is a place called Jericho and I'm going to go back to Numbers chapter 13 Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 15. The children of Israel are still in the wilderness. If you want to turn to that text, it, it would be helpful to you and to me also. But uh, the children of Israel were getting ready to go into the promised land from the wilderness. They had been in the wilderness 40 years. 40 years. And now they were getting ready to go into the land of, or they were getting ready to spend 40 years in the wilderness. They were getting ready to go into the land of Canaan, the land that, that was uh, described as a land flowing with milk and honey. So I'm going to read Numbers chapter 13. Moses, Moses had sent 12 spies into the land, one from each tribe of Israel, 12 men, to go in and check out the land and see if it was possible that they could sustain themselves on what they found in the land. Okay? They weren't looking for enemies. They weren't looking for, for uh, armies. They weren't looking for resistance of, of uh, soldiers. They were looking to see what the land looked like. And so when these 12 men came back, it said they returned from searching the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the, of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and to all the land. They, they showed them the fruit of the land. As a matter of fact, they carried a, a bunch of grapes between them on a pole. That's how large the grapes were. Probably grapes as big as cantaloupes. They brought them back. And they showed what they had brought back from the land. It says, and it says, they told him and said, We came into the land where you sent us, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people are strong that dwell in the land. The cities are walled, like we see in the picture, and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. Anak would be the predecessor of Goliath. He was one of the descendants of Anak. Big guy. Nine feet tall. 
He said, the Am- they said, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. So they laid it all out and said, we know where everybody's living. All the different, different individuals, different tribes. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it. For we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people. They're stronger than we are. And they brought them up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. Well, here was a naysayer. We we can't do it. Ten of these men said we can't go. Two of the men said, let's go. Caleb was one of them. He said, there we saw the giants. This this is the ten. The sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. Now, the, the report was ten to two. We can't do it. It's, it's not feasible. We can't go. Two men said, let's get together and go. Ten of these men didn't go. They, they didn't go. Two did. One of these men became the five-star general, Joshua. He's the one that led the children of Israel after Moses and took them into the land. Now, when they crossed the river Jordan, the first thing they came upon was a walled city called Jericho. And all the people had gotten inside the walled city and they had stocked themselves with provisions and they were there and the text says they weren't going to come out. Now you can't leave a walled city with armed men behind you as you move forward. Some of you may be aware of what happened in Texas in 1830 at the Alamo when Santa Ana brought his 6,000 troops into the country to to conquer and and subdue the Texans. He brought them to San Antonio and the Alamo was there. He could have gone on by, but an army, a commander cannot leave the enemy in his flank. Behind him. Can't do that. So when the children of Israel got to Jericho, they could not leave Jericho behind them in their flank. Behind them. They had to take the city. Okay. Joel chapter 6 at verse 1 through 5 says, Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. Now, the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have set before you into your hand Jericho and the king thereof. I have given you them and the mighty men of valor. I have given you the city and everything, all the mighty men in it. Sounds good so far. You will compass the city, all you men of war, and go around about the city once. You shall do this six days. Now they were to go around the city, march around the city, one time a day. No man was to open his mouth. They were to take the armed men in front. They were to bring the ark in the middle, armed men at the back, and the priest were to be blowing the trumpet, trumpets as they went around. That's all they did. They marched around the city one, once a day for six days. 
He said, Seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns, and the seventh day you will compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people will shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. Now, was, was, was that con uh, the conceivable way? Was that the military stratagem of an armed force to march around this city once a day, blowing trumpets, on the seventh day, march around the city seven days and shout at the same time, and the walls fell down flat? The logistics of this battle are unconventional, to say the least, right? Now, we know that armies show a show, or nations will want to show a, make a show of strength. We sometimes see newsreels, and we've seen some lately. The Russian armies are marching through the streets, making a display of their strength for the Ukrainians. We've seen this with the, with the Nazi armies, even with the American armies. When we want to make a demonstration of strength, we march our men in the streets. Okay. Was this what Israel was doing, showing the people in Jericho their strength, who they were? Now, it, 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 we, we can't assume that they were going to set up a tremble or trembling of the earth and shake the walls down because if so they would have had to have been marching in cadence in lockstep and even then there's no assurance that it would shake the ground enough to bring these walls down they didn't have battlements they didn't they didn't carry ladders to breach the walls they didn't have trebuchets to hurl great stones and fire into the city they didn't have battering rams mounted on carts to ram against the walls. They had none of that. They had horns they were blowing. And armed men, of course, they were marching around and then making a great shout. Well, that would probably terrorize a lot of people, but what would it do to the walls of Jericho? Absolutely nothing. Okay, now just think about this. Is this the way you would have, have attacked the city of Jericho? Was this conventional? Was this intelligible? Was this logistical? Was this the way to do it? Obviously, it's not the way we'd do it, is it? It's not the way a modern commander would do it. It's not the way an ancient commander of armies would do it. But that's the way they did it. Okay. Now let's, let's look in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. Another illustration. Let's see if I... Am I doing this right? There we go. 1 Kings 17. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. So just walk your way up to First Kings. First Kings chapter seventeen. 
verse 1 through 7. We're going to run, run across a, a prophet by the name of Elijah. Elijah the Tishbite, that was where he's from. Who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, the Lord God of Israel. Ahab was the king of the northern tribes. The king who was ensconced in an area called Samaria. We know Samaria from the New Testament times. But Ahab was the king of the northern tribes of Israel. The, the ten tribes that left God. There's still ten tribes of Israel. Ahab was one of those kings. And so Elijah went to Ahab and he said, The Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. There shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kiroth, which is before Jordan. So he was in Samaria, in between the coast, the Mediterranean Sea, and the river Jordan. He was in between that part. And God said, Now go back to one of the little tributaries that feeds the Jordan River. The Jordan River ran between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And it runs year-round. But he said, Turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kiroth that is before Jordan, and it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Kiroth that is before Jordan. So he said, Go, go there. You can get some water and food. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening. He drank of the brook. Okay. It came to pass that after a while the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now we know how long it was going to be dry. God said it's going to be three and a half years of drought. Okay. So, so far so good. He said, I'll send you down to Kiroth and there there's, there's some water and I'll send the ravens in. Now, you know, Elijah didn't question it. He just did it. Amen. I want to back up just a little bit. Let's back up just a little bit. Let's go back to the first thing we read about in the feeding of the 4,000. There was something lacking in that whole system. In everything that was done there, there was no faith required by anyone when God fed them. No one had to believe a thing. When the walls of Jericho fell down, there was no faith in that at all. They had no idea what was going to happen. No faith involved. They just did what they were told. They didn't know what was going to happen. Had no idea what was going to happen. No faith was required. God just did it. Now look at this. Here we have Elijah going, he's, he's being told, I will take care of you. And so he went by the brook Kiroth. He had fresh water and he had food. The ravens brought Can you imagine? Who would, who would have thought that this is the way God would feed this man? Then it ran out. Everything ran out. So it says that uh, the word of the Lord came unto him saying, Get down to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon. This is in 1 Kings 17, 8, verse 8 through 16, if you're in the same, the same text. Get, get down to Zarephath. 
which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain you. Now, to give you some idea of where he was going, Zidon was where Jezebel lived. <laughs> Jezebel. He's, he's selling him into the heart of pagan idolatry. Here's where all the idolatry was going on. Here's where Jezebel was, who would later try to chase him with hundreds of her false prophets. Try to, try to get his blood. Ahab, of course, married Jezebel. He was the king of Israel. He had married this woman. So he said, go down, go down to, uh, Z- to uh, Zarephath that belongs to Zidon and dwell there. And I've commanded a widow to take care of you. Now, I don't know how many of you have grew up this way, but I grew up knowing that I was not to take advantage of the feminine gender. That if anybody was to support anybody, the man was to support the woman. So, and especially in terms of widows. He said, I'm going to send send you down there and let a widow woman take care of you. James 1.27 says, Pure religion undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the widows and the orphans their affliction. It's, it's contrary. It was, I'm sure it was contrary to what Elijah knew. He was the one that should be taking care of her instead of her taking care of him. Incongruous, isn't it? Just doesn't seem right. But he said, okay, I'm going to send you down there to Zarephath. And he said, when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, fetch me... I pray you, a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread, and then you and your son can eat after that. Ladies, the women and children should always go first. But here's Elijah was saying, Bring me something to drink first. Bring me something to eat first, and then whatever's left over you can have. Well, that doesn't seem right, does it? But that's what God told him to do. And he said, and Elijah said, don't, don't be afraid. The woman said, I'm gathering two sticks that I, I may go. First of all, she said, she said, as the Lord God lives, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. She said, I have a little bottle of oil and a little bit of wheat or meal. And I, I was gathering two sticks and I was going to get a fire going, and I was going to make some bread for myself and my son, then we are going to die. But Elijah said, no, here's what you do first. Bring me something to eat. Something to drink and something to eat. He, and then Elijah said, don't fear, go do as you've said. Go, go do what you said, but make me there of a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for you and your son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day the Lord God sends rain upon the earth. She went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and her and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of God, which he spoke by Elijah. Now, if I were going to send someone in a, in a drought, some place to take care of them. Now, I'm not God. But if I, if I had the ability, if I had the authority, and if I had the power 
and the resources. If, if I knew there was going to be a, a time of, of uh, little, three and a half years, it's going to be a drought, I would send this guy, one of my men, if, if I wanted him to stay alive, I'd send him to some place where there was lots of meal, where somebody had, had stored it up in, in, in uh, hangars maybe, and some place where there was always fresh water, like maybe a uh, artesian well somewhere. I'd send him somewhere where, where I would know he could be taken care of, where there was lots of goods there for it, for him to take care, take care of him. You, you follow what I'm saying? If it were me, that's not how I would have done it. And I certainly wouldn't have sent him to take advantage of a will if it were me. But it wasn't me, it was God. Now, I don't know if it took any faith or not, but it just happened. It's not as if the, the meal lasted and the oil lasted because the widow woman had a lot of faith. It's because that's the way God did it. That's why He did it. It was unconventional. It was, it was, not, it was not what we would think should happen. It was not in the standard, normal way of events that should unfold. But that's, that's what happened. That's what, what went on. One more. Old Testament. One more. Second Kings. Second Kings is right after First Kings. Second Kings chapter 5. Now Israel had been in war, at war with the Assyrians who came from what we would call... Uh, Iran and Iraq in that area. That's where the Assyrians came from. And they came into the area of Canaan. They came from the north down to the south. And they had, uh, they had taken several nations into captivity, destroying them on the way. And they had taken the Israelites into captivity. They also were, were uh, using or taking into captivity the Syrians. S-Y-R-I-A-N-S. Not us Syrians, but Syrians. And Naaman was a captain of the Syrian armies. Now I'm reading in 2 Kings 5, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, which was a great man with his master, and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. Now here was a, here was a pagan nation, a pagan country, the text says that God had given him, the captain of the Syrian armies, had given him deliverance unto Syria through him. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. He had a skin disease. Okay. Here we have a country totally separate from God. God was not part of that country of Syria. He was part of Judah and Israel. He was not, he was not the king over Syria as, as such. But here's the, here's the nation of Syria, and here's the captain of the host of Syria, probably the five-star general, as we mentioned before. He was honorable, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel. Here was a country... Here was a man who had taken a force into Israel and brought, that this was the northern tribes of Israel, he had brought a 
little maid out of those captives. A foreign country that invaded one of God's people, the nation of God's people, and it brought captives back. Put that in your head. God's involved in this with a man of another nation, of another government. He's involved in it. And it says that, uh, that they had brought, brought a little maid and she waited on Naaman's wife. If you can imagine. Somehow something went on here. Here's a little maid from Israel who was taken captive by a foreign nation that God had used. Okay? Captain of, he, was the, he was the general of the armies. And she waited on Naaman's life, wife. And, and she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were the prophet that in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. So the little maid knew about Elisha, the prophet. Nobody. And she told Naaman's wife about this guy. And she said, There's a guy down, there's a prophet down in Israel who could take care of your husband's leprosy. Wow. And so it says, One went and told his Lord. Now here's another servant going and telling his Lord, which was the king of Syria. He went and told the king of Syria. And he, he, he said, Thus saith the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to. Go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. So now it's king to king. Not, not army captain to army captain. It's king to king. So the king says, okay, to this servant that came and told him the story, he said, you go down to Israel and you take this money with you and you tell him here's what we want to happen. Okay. He said, go to and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, and ten changes of raiment. Probably good stuff. You know what happened? The king of Israel said, "What? What are you doing in my? What? I had to, I'm not God. I can't take care of this." It really blew him away. He said, "I can't do this." So they they, uh, they decided they better get down to talk to Elisha. So what Elisha told him was, he sent word back. He said, "Here's what you do. You go and come down to the to the river Jordan and dip yourself seven times in the river Jordan." You'll be clean. Now, let's, let's go down to verse 11 in 2 Kings 5. He says, Naaman was wroth. He got mad. The story got back to him. The servant came back and told him what the king said and what the prophet said. The prophet told him what to do. So the king, Naaman got mad and he went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand. Now listen, here's a guy that's saying, if, if I were going to do it myself, here's, here's how I would do it. Here's what I would do. If you're going to cure me of leprosy, here's how I want you to do it. I want you to send this guy to me and have him say something over me, wave his hands and do something magical and take away my leprosy. That's what he wanted. He said, if, if this is the way I was going to do it, right? How would you have done it? Anyway... He said, I thought he'd come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and, and recover the leprosy. That's what he thought would happen. 
He said, Are not Arbana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Not going to happen. That's not, the way I, that's not the way I think it ought to be done. Right? His servants came near and spoke unto him, said, My father, if the prophet had bid you do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much rather than when he said unto thee, Wash and be clean. Then he went down from Damascus. Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again, like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now we sometimes apply this to baptism, and that's probably right. Because Peter said in the first Peter chapter three, verse twenty one, it's not the washing of water by the it's not the washing of the filth of the flesh, but it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. So it wasn't, it wasn't the washing of water that did it. It was because he did what God told him to do. What the prophet told him to do. Isn't that correct? Yes. But, but you say, well, why do it this way? And the people argue about baptism like that all the time. They'll say, well, the Bible says repent and be baptized. But, but we think, well, why not just do something great? Say something great over us instead of that. And so people reject baptism. What we need to do when we're talking about this is to go back to the text in the New Testament and talk about baptism. What shall we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized everyone in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is baptism? Well, it's rising out of the dead. It's repeating the process of dying, coming up out of the waters, cleansed with the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the form of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's what the Bible teaches. You go down into the water, come out of the water. That's not my point here. My point is, that this was unconventional. It didn't involve any faith, did it? This, this man, Naaman, said, I'm not going to do that. It wasn't an issue of faith with him. It was an issue of whether God said, this way I want you to do it. The prophet said, do it this way. And when he did it, it happened. He had no faith and he just did it. And lo and behold, it happened. It's not what he thought should have happened. Now, let's, let's draw some conclusions from these four illustrations, okay? What we're talking about in all four of these illustrations, the feeding of the 4,000, the uh, walls of Jericho, uh, the feeding of Elijah, taking care of Elijah by the widow, and Naaman. None of these things involve issues of faith in any way at all. But it's the way God was doing things. It's the way God was handling events. And it does, it does not seem to us to be what we, the way we would do it. It is sometimes surprising. It surprised Naaman, didn't it? the leper. It was startling. It was disconcerting. It was disconcerting to the widow when, when Elijah came and said, you've got to feed me for three and a half years. Disconcerting. Ha, I don't, she said, I don't have it. You came down here to get it. I don't have it. I, I've got two sticks. I'm going to make a little fire and I'm going to make some bread. And my son and I are going to eat it. We're going to die. 
We don't have it. It's in Congress. It, it's just something that you wouldn't expect, right? This is in the walls of Jericho. Who would anticipate them falling? Well, I'm sure the men that were marching around the city of Jericho had no idea what was going to happen. They had no earthly idea what was happening. Nothing. Amen. They could not have predicted it. And none of these events could it have been predicted. It just didn't happen the way you'd think it should have happened. But God, in all four of these instances, was working his own way. Amen. Whoa. You mean God can do things that he doesn't have to clear with me first? That's right. Can he? <laughs> Say amen. Well, sure he can. These four instances tell us that. Inconventional, unconventional, incongruous, surprising, stunning, almost unbelievable. They weren't necessarily miraculous events that we would think of as miracles, but it happened. Now, the things that God tells us in His Word are sure, steadfast, reliable, and predictable. So you read the Bible... And whatever God has promised you is going to happen. Whatever God tells you to do, you should do. I should too. But there are things that God is doing that are not within our periphery, not within our logistical pattern of thinking, that God is going to do things with or without our permission, or with or without our understanding, or with or without our knowledge of how it's going to happen, right? Now, God will always do what is right and what is good. So when we're looking at what God is doing in this world, aside from what you're reading in the scriptures, okay, let's keep that apart. Here's what the Bible says. We know these things are reliable and sure. and there we, we know what they are and we know the outcome of it. We do, we do know that, don't we? Right? But there are things we don't know about God and what He's doing. How He's doing them. Who would have thought in Israel, who would have thought that God would have used Naaman, the, the Syrians, to accomplish His purpose? Who would have thought God would have used the Babylonians to accomplish His purpose? Who would have thought any of this? It's in Congress. We just don't think that way. Correct? Okay, but we do know that God is good. Matthew chapter 19, verse 17. When, when uh, the young man came to Jesus, he said, Good Master, and almost before the words died out of his mouth, Jesus said, Why are you calling me good? There's none good but one, which is God. And then in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, talking about Jesus, he went about doing good. So whatever God does is good. Whatever we do is a mess. You know that? We get ourselves in messes. If there's disease on this earth, it's not God's fault. It's our fault. We pass it around. We pass around plagues. We pass around scourges. We, pa- we, we passed around the bubonic plague. We passed around the scarlet fever. We passed around COVID-19. We pass all that around. We pass around diseases among ourselves. We do all this, and yet we turn around and blame God. No, He didn't start all this mess. Adam started it. 
As in Adam all die, so in Christ also be made alive. Okay? So whatever mess and pickle we get ourselves into, we did it ourselves. And we did it through the promotion of the evil that surround us. We do, we do that. That's, that's what we do. But we expect God to bail us out of the mess that we got ourselves into. Correct? And when we expect Him to bail us out of the mess, we want Him to do it the way we think He ought to do it. Got it? What did these people think? How should you feed us, Lord? We'll put some manna on the ground. That was what they thought. John chapter 6, that's what they thought. How am I going to knock these walls of Jericho down? Well, let's get some schematics on some trebuchets. Let's, let's, let's get some battering rams going. Let's, let's get some wheels built and so forth. Let's, let's get going. That's not how God did it. God marched these people around the city of Jericho six times. And then seven times in one day, and the walls fell down. Who would have figured? Well, I wouldn't have. Neither would you have. God always works out His way in a way that we cannot always anticipate or expect. Can't always anticipate it. God is good. Amen. The problem is, when we decide that we want to design the answer to our prayers, we, we set up parameters and say, okay, God, you answer the prayers in this realm. Here's, here's how you answer my prayers. Right? When you pray for something, don't you, don't you decide how it's going to work out? Don't you figure this is the way it's going to work? I'm praying for, and here's the way I want it to happen. If it doesn't happen that way, oops, the point is, you're not the only human being on earth. So sometimes, when God is answering prayers, He's maybe not answering the one you want to be answered in that particular way. James said it this way. He said uh, that you are not getting your prayers answered because you're asking amiss to consume it upon your own lust. So we're asking to satisfy ourselves, not asking for something to happen that will be according to God's will. I also want to tell you, I want to, here's some things that I, that I concluded from the series of these four illustrations. Faith is not always involved in what God is doing in our lives. He can do something we have no earthly ideas going on. And faith is not necessarily a part of it. God is acting independent of me. Can you imagine that? He's also acting independent of you. So don't, don't get too big for yourself. He's, he's acting independent of you and of what you want and what you think and what you feel like you need. He acts independent of that. But when He's doing things, He's doing things that are good. But here's the text that tell us that it's not always according to what we need or what we feel we want or the parameters that we have set for God. Romans chapter 3 verse 3 and 4 says, For some did not believe, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God of none effect? 
Because somebody does not believe in God, does that mean he's going to stop? He's going to quit? That God is going to give up and say, well, I was going to help them, but they don't believe, therefore I'm not going to help them. He wouldn't have sent his son to this earth, would he? That happened. It says, God forbid, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you might be justified in your sayings and might overcome when you are judged. I've got to mention this. We usually come up against this and put our nose right against it when we're having a serious difficulty in our life concerning life and death situations. Our child is sick and we're afraid the child's going to die. If it does not work out the way we believe it ought to work out, then we think that God didn't have anything to do with what's going on. You know, God takes a longer view of these things than we do. I'm short-sighted. He's long-sighted. He sees the end of everything. I know we get distressed over situations when we get into trouble and have problems and things don't go our way. And so some people will, after the situation, stand up and say, well, if, I'm not, if, if God loved me, He would have done this. You see what's happening? I've set the rules. God, here, if, you, if you really love me, here's how you're going to act. Here's what you're going to do. So I take the short look at it. And I say, this is, this is, I want the solution here. God takes the long look at it. You know, our story ends at the grave. But God's story goes past the grave. Our story ends at the grave. We have a stop, stopping point, but God doesn't have one. He doesn't have a stopping point. And Romans 11.34 says, Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? Has He asked for your advice lately on how He's going to handle things? Hasn't asked for mine. Not at all. And I, I, I should not want to impose upon Him and try to give Him my advice. God will do in our lives the unexpected and the unconventional so when you think maybe your prayer is not being answered, maybe you're not looking in the right place. When you think that God doesn't care and isn't involved in this, maybe you're not looking at it right. I'm thinking, and I, sh- I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to because this, this is kind of controversial. Millions and millions of prayers have gone up lately because of this COVID-19 thing. How do we want God to solve it? Some people are concerned about the vaccination saying, well, the pharmaceutical people are getting rich off of this. So what? Is God using that to stop the plague? Pandemic? How about the government? Well, I, I, want, I want the plague to stop, but I, want, I don't want the government to have anything to do with it. I don't want them telling me what to do. Be careful. Because what you're asking is that God not use those means to get a hold of this pandemic. You follow what I'm saying? Are you waiting for something that you approve of for God to do to bring the pandemic to an end? Does God use governments to take care of what He's trying to do? Answering prayers? He did with Syria, didn't He? He did with Babylon. He did with the Roman government. We have to be careful that we're not opposing the will of God. 
when we're, when we're saying, well, we, we just don't believe that the government could take away my civil liberties to take care of this problem. How do you know? Is God doing I don't, you know, I, I really don't know. But my feeling is that He is handling this thing. He may not be doing it the way I thought He should be doing it, the way I thought it should work, but is it working? How else are we going to do it? There will always be, and this is what I want to end this on. I know that's, that's kind of a disturbing situation because there are a lot of people that, are, that feel like the government's taking advantage of them and doing something to them that shouldn't be done in trying to control the, the pandemic. I know that. I don't know if there's anybody in here feels that way, but I know that that's going on. That it, 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 somehow we're not going sub, to submit ourselves to these things because the government's telling us to do it. Has God ever used a government to tell you to do anything? Well, He has before. So I, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. I'm not saying that that's what's happening. I'm saying that's could be. But I know this. That whatever happens, whatever God does in your life, whatever you're asking for, whatever you're praying for, whatever you need, God is going to handle it. He may not handle it your way. He may not take care of it. He may do it in an incongruous way. He may, not, he may do it in an unexpected way. He may not take care of everything immediately right now when we need it. It may be later on. He is taking the long look and we're taking the short look, but He's going to take the long look. He'll do whatever He needs to do to take care of you because you belong to Him. You belong to Him. And He loves you. He loves you with all of His heart. And I know this, that whatever happens in your life or my life as a child of God, we know that there will always always, when God's involved in it, be happy results. Always. Let's stand and sing the song of invitation.